This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode number 26 of the UU Perspective podcast, where you hear weekly interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world. Whether you're already a member or a seeker exploring the faith, there is something here for everyone. So as you sit, walk, jog, or drive, enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. Today, I want to give you some information about the UUSC, the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. And uh, we've got Rachel Gorefried, who is the senior program leader for Rights at Risk. And she is going to be talking about the over 1,500 refugee women that are currently being detained in jail-like conditions in Texas and Pennsylvania, and it's three three different camps that these women are in. She is going to share some of the suffering that's going on there and her personal account and what is being done and what you can do to help. And I'd like to first, though, give you a little overview of the UUSC. It's a human rights organization, and it's powered by grassroots collaboration. And in more than a dozen countries throughout the world, the UUSC fosters social justice and works towards a world free from oppression. The UUSC challenges injustices and is advancing human rights. So the four areas that the UUSC focuses on are workers' rights, humanitarian disasters, civil liberties, and water. They serve people who are left out of traditional relief aid. And I want to first talk about something that's very, very current uh, within the last week, and right now it's mid-August of 2015. And what's in the forefront is the uh, Dominican Republic that's deporting the Haitians. And these are Haitians, they could have been born in the Dominican Republic, and they are being deported. They're in camps along the border, and many are malnourished and and suffering from the loss of the rights that, that they had. Reverend Bill Schultz, who is the president and CEO of the UUSC, he had written a letter and sent it out as an email campaign to many Unitarian Universalists. And in that, he said, So far, despite wielding huge influences in the Dominican Republic, the U.S. government has done virtually nothing publicly to stop this human rights disaster. Secretary Kerry can and should use that influence to convince the Dominican government to put the brakes on this crisis. And so in mid-July, the Dominican Republic had announced it was pausing, pausing its deportation plans. But then on August 14th, the authorities openly and actively resume patrols to detain and deport migrants who lack documents. So this started all back up again. And now you have many many Haitians who, if they have Haitian family backgrounds, they are being deported back to Haiti. And some of these people have never even been there. And so it's a huge, huge tragedy what's going on right now. So we'll have more information. There'll be a link on the show notes where you can take a look at the petition that Reverend Schultz put out and what you can do to help the situation in the Dominican Republic for the Haitians right now. So let's get on to 
Rachel Gore-Fried and talk about the women that are in the camps in both Texas and Pennsylvania. So here we go. All right, then welcome, Rachel, and we're very happy to have you here. I've already given everyone a little bit of information about you, but I'd like you just to take a minute and tell us about your involvement inside of uh, the UUSC. Yeah, thanks uh, so much for having me. So I'm a human rights lawyer, and I've worked both domestically on environmental justice issues, immigration and asylum issues, been on task force for refugee issues, and I've also worked on the international level on war crimes accountability, human rights, labor rights. So I came to UUSC to lead the Rights at Risk program in January, and basically I'm here to uh, spearhead and plan our work responding to humanitarian crises and advancing the rights of people who are most often discriminated or overlooked in the midst of crisis, such as forced migration, large-scale conflicts, genocide, and natural disasters. So I'm very excited to be a part of UUSC and a part of this community. Great. Give us a little bit of information about what the UUSC is. Yeah, so the UUSC is a small human rights organization. Um, as most people probably know, it was started after World War II, and when, when you use well, all a bunch of different faiths were going and helping Jews during the Holocaust. And it's become this service committee where we partner very closely with small grassroots organizations around the world to understand what are the issues they're facing and to empower them to take a difference in their communities and enact social change. And we do this both through funding, providing small grants, providing technical assistance, mobilizing our constituents on various issues, maybe how U.S. foreign policy affects the the over the international issues, and also um, engaging engaging in sort of the international legal community with the UN and the human rights field. Is it connected with the UUA or is it just totally separate? It's totally separate, but we often work uh, co collaboratively with the UUA. So in, in earthquake response and various issues, we'll work with them and, and you know, sending out our message or um, raising funds or even just making other decisions about strategy. And how did you end up getting involved with the UUSC? Yeah, you know, it was almost the perfect job description for me when I saw it. And I had been looking for to, to transition back into the human rights field. And I'm based in Boston, Massachusetts. And UUSC is one of the premier human rights organizations here. Um, it's based in Cambridge. And the work was really innovative and just kind of the, the right fit for someone like me, who's a bit of a generalist um, in the aspect that I've worked on various different environmental justice, social justice issues. And so this, this the, the job description was really made for me. And as soon as I came and met the people here, I just knew it was the right fit. Is there a, a specific project that you're working on right now that's kind of in the forefront? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's so many projects, um, but just to sort of, I think one of the ones that's been of most interest to many of our constituents and to you use across the country has been our border justice work, which is really about responding to the recent influx of refugees coming from Central America. And our program is sort of seeking to decriminalize the movement of those fleeing across our borders and to ensure the protection and liberty of these refugees. As far as working on this project, what is the biggest challenge that you faced? Um, well, it's, it's a, the, the issue is changing by the minute. 
And it's been an interesting issue to work on because, so we work directly with um, a grassroots partner. Their name is Raisis for short. The Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education Legal Services. So we work very closely with them to understand some of the issues they're working on. And then we work sort of with this interfaith coalition and then with a larger, more secular coalition of human rights organizations in raising the issue, doing advocacy before Congress and sort of spreading the, the message that these are refugees and not to sort of lump them in just as illegal immigrants in the sense that some of the right-wing media has led us to, to sort of understand the issue. So it's been sort of a, a an uphill battle because of the administration's policy stance, because of the lack of um, connection to the women, because they've sort of, there's barriers to the women because they're stuck in these detention centers. And so the issue has been sort of hard to bring to the forefront and to sort of change the public attitudes, um, perception of what's really happening. What do you think it's going to take to change that attitude? You know, there it's it's about uh, constantly being vocal in the media about what the actual issues are. So just to give a little bit more context, you know, last year there was about 70,000 unaccompanied children and 70,000 family units that came across from three specific countries in Central America. That's El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And they've come here seeking refuge in our country. And the government's policy has been to detain them in these large detention centers. So the work that we're doing is really to sort of lift up the work of this organization that we partner with and then make sure that um, we're sponsoring congressional briefings on the issue and we've drafted petitions that address, you know, the needs of the women in the detention center to both the Obama administration and to the Department of Homeland Security. And then the last thing we did was we heard that there was a great need for um, volunteers to come down and help brief the women on their rights and, and facilitate some of the intake for their cases. And And so we partnered with CSJ to develop this robust sort of volunteer skilled service learning trips. Are the women, I mean, are they getting out of this imprisonment or, I mean, how's the process to, how long does it take to get them out or are they still just all there? Um, Some of the women have been there for between six months to a year. With the administration's recent reforms and policy announcements, there have been some of the women released. And from our partner on the ground, they've been telling us that it's the women who've been the most vocal and the ones who have been going to the press about their cases that are getting released. There was also a congressional delegation of Democrats that went down to the detention centers. And our sense from our partner is that DHS actually cleared out some of the vocal women before the congressional delegation arrived just to ensure that they weren't being bombarded with all this information from the women who'd been really vocal. So, I mean, there's been some political maneuvering here, but there are still a large amount of women. The majority, something like 2,000 family units are detained at the Dili Detention Center, which, you know, has been compared to a World War II internment camp. And so this is, you know, it's troublesome for many reasons, but really what we worry about the most is the psychological trauma for the children that are detained and especially seeing your own mother so anxious and not really understanding what your rights are, what's going to happen to you the next day. I think it's just, it's really traumatic. I mean, you have four-year-olds who've spent half their, you know, a whole year in a detention center. I mean, these are the formative years for them. And so it just, it doesn't seem like this is the best option for these children and for the women. And there are also really um, effective alternative to detention programs. There's community-based programs, there's nonprofit organizations, 
organizations that have agreed to sort of take, set up shelters, um, work with the group to make sure that they um, attend their court hearings and understand their rights. And then for the most part, most of these women and children have relatives or friends somewhere else in the United States, and they have the option to go and relocate with them. So, you know, the government's reasons for detaining um, these women and children are just, they're not there, and it's really about deterrence and discouraging people from crossing our border. But the honest, the honest truth is you can't discourage people fleeing from true persecution. And we're hopeful that our government is starting to recognize that and is going to make some reform, greater reforms with this new announcement. What's the timetable that you see with that? Well, so this, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson made an announcement that they were going to enact reforms and start facilitating uh, setting reasonable bonds for these women and children, and they are going to expedite cases and ensure that people have timely hearings. There's also a court decision that's um, forthcoming. It's supposed to be issued in the next few days that's actually called the Flores decision and it concerns whether detention for children is okay under the Flores guidelines which is an old 1997 agreement that discussed um, what conditions can you detain children in and what can't you do. What have been some of the extreme conditions and what were are the results there are, so I've been down and I went to the detention centers in February and interviewed women and children. And, you know, there's, there's health conditions because there you're putting a lot of young children and close quarters. And so the kids are constantly sick. The mothers feel like they don't have access to the medical information treatments and services that the children are um, receiving. They don't quite understand. Um, they're not really being told what's happening. And then often when the children are sick, the mother and the child get put into what's really similar to solitary confinement where they're kept inside of their own room and they can't mix with people. So some of the women and children are covering up the fact that they're sick because they don't want to go down to this like solitary cell. A lot of the women and children are um, complaining about the quality of the food and the quality of the water. The one of the detention centers, the Karn Center, is actually in the middle of a fracking area, and the water tastes very chlorinated. So, and this is an issue, especially for nursing mothers, because there are some women who are not drinking water and they're not eating, but they're trying to nurse their babies, um, and you know that's a that's a huge problem. And then there's just the sort of failure to thrive thing that we've seen. Um, some of the women have been saying that their babies are not allowed to crawl. So they're not learning to crawl. They're not learning to walk. And there's sort of just a listlessness that you see when you talk to some of these very young kids. And I'm a mother of a toddler. So this was especially concerning to me. And I've written about this before. But, you know, the psychological effects of being in whitewashed walls for, um, you know, the first few years of your life are are debilitating, and we're not sure that the women are getting the adequate um, support and services that they need. And this is also a huge cost to American taxpayers. I mean, it's about $300 a person per day to keep them in a detention center. So it seems that there's a much better, more effective, more humane way to allow these women and children to live while their cases are being decided by the courts. Wow. And especially if they already have families here, that just doesn't even make sense that they just can't go to those families. Exactly. There are only two times that we detain people that are asylum seekers in the United States. And usually it's because they've committed some sort of crime, which is not the case here. I mean, it's not a crime to seek asylum in the United States. Um, this is actually a relief that's protected by our laws and international law. 
And the only, the only two issues they normally um, consider in a bond hearing is one, is the woman a danger to her community? Or two, is she a flight risk? And neither of these things have appeared true, but yet the government continues to request $10,000, set bonds at $10,000, which the women can't pay. And so really, I mean, it goes back to the fact that the government's sort of uh, rationale in all of this is to deter more families from coming. But the, 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 the main issue here is that there's mass, there's extreme violence. Honduras is actually considered the most violent country in the world. There's impunity for um, men who've committed gender-based crimes such as um, feminis- femicide, um, all these different sort of sexually-based domex- domestic violence crimes. They're getting away with, and the government's not doing anything to protect these women and children. So, you know, this the, 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 the poverty and the, the mass violence in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala have caused these women and children to make this migration um, to the United States. And, and also Mexico has very poor asylum laws and treatment of asylum seekers. So, I mean, they really have had no choice to come yet uh, other than to come to the United States. And, you know, we do have somewhat of a moral duty to protect, you know, asylum seekers. I mean, we are a country of immigrants. We're a country of democracy and freedom and peace. So it just seems that there's, there's better alternatives for these families. Right. And how many different camps are there? So there's three. There's one in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia called the Burks facility. Then there's the Carnes um, Center in Carnes City, Texas. And then there's the Dilly Center in Dilly, Texas. Um, and so there's three family detention centers. And both the two of them in the Texas are owned by private corporations. Oh, that's interesting. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's actually, a, the U.S. government has uh, contracts that actually guarantee a certain quota of detainees on a given night. So that's also, you know, there's an economic sort of aspect to all of this that's kind of frightening. So, and these places, they're looking like prisons, that type of thing? Yes. Yep, the, the Carnes... Uh, uh, was a former prison that was converted into a family detention center. And the Dili was an oil field workers camp, but it really looks like the Japanese internment camps. Wow. Are they able to go outside and get fresh air? And do they have that opportunity? Yeah, it's fenced in, but they can go outside. All right. How, how can people help? Well, I mean, UUSC has a petition right now that's requesting the um, government review 100 cases of women that have been given very little chance of getting out of the detention center. These are women who have passed their reasonable fear interview, so they've met a higher bar for asylum. So we have a petition on our website that you can sign if you want to support those 100 women that our partner's focusing on. Raisi is our partner, also is looking for volunteers, both Spanish-speaking volunteers and attorneys to come down and help um, with intake. So we've been facilitating this volunteer program through UUCSJ if people are interested. Other ways you can help is just to be vocal and write to your congressional representatives and tell them that you want to end family detention. So really there's a, there's a range of political and both personal action you can take on this issue. Okay, great. And we'll kind of, we'll put that information in the show notes too. All right. Is, is there anything else you want to say about that just to sum this up? No, I mean, it's been really wonderful. We have a very um, passionate constituent base of people who are very motivated to help these women and it's very exciting to see and encouraging. All right, great. Could you share a quote with us that inspires you? Yeah, I'll share this quote by Arundhati Roy. She's a famous Indian writer and political activist. 
Um, she also wrote some famous books. So the quote is, to love, to be loved, to never forget your own significance, to never get used to the unspeakable violence and the vulgar disparity of life around you, to seek joy in the saddest places, to pursue beauty to its lair, to never simplify what is complicated or complicate what is simple, to rec- respect strength, never power, above all, to watch, to try and understand, to never look away, and never, never to forget. Wonderful. And what does that mean for you? I think it just uh, sort of is part of my view on understanding world issues and trying to empathize with various different sides and viewpoints and to really respect different opinions and voices on various issues. All right. Great. Well, I'm going to ask our last question that we ask everyone, but I'll change it up just a bit because we want to fit this inside of the UUSC. And so I'm going to ask, how is the UUSC as an organization, how is it uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? You know, UUSC has a really interesting take on advancing human rights. And it's really about the eye-to-eye partnership model that works on grassroots collaboration and that works with these groups to understand what are the... um, the social constructs that are oppressing them and how can we work together on innovative approaches that have measurable impact to create change and to really help those achieve the power, dignity, and their rights. So I think that UUSC's mission um, in advancing human rights and social justice around the world is very unique and that we're going to have, and that we have had, and we will continue to have a lot of success in confronting unjust power structures and mobilizing to challenge oppressive policies. All right. Great. Well, thank you, Rachel. I really appreciate you taking the time out and giving us more information about what's going on. So no problem. Thank you very much, Sharon. All right. Thanks so much for listening to the UU Perspective podcast. And you can go to our website, uuperspective.com and you can contact me ask any questions and the email for that is questions at uuperspective.com feel free to make any comments in any of the episodes subscribe on iTunes and also you can go to the speak pipe button that you'll see on your right on the website and click on that and you can follow the directions to leave us a 90 second voicemail leave your opinions about what's happening in these camps that are in texas and also pennsylvania and what more can you do to help out the situation thanks so much for all our listeners in the over 30 countries that are listening now I'm very appreciative that you take the time out to put the UU perspective into your day. So until next week, have a great week, and we'll see you then. Mm -hmm.